The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. James Greenblatt. He has dedicated his professional career to integrative psychiatry. He has worked with thousands of children, adolescents, and adults, employing both medical and complementary therapies in the treatment of mental illness. Dr. Greenblatt is duly board certified in child and adult psychiatry. He received his medical degree and completed his adult psychiatry residency at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and he completed a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medical School. I heard Dr. Greenblatt speak. He gave a presentation to a practice group that I belong to titled The Dietitians in Functional Medicine, and the title of his webinar was Malnourished Minds, a Functional Medicine Approach to Cognition, Memory, and Mood. It was fascinating, and I wanted to bring his voice to our listeners. Welcome, Dr. Greenblatt. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you touched on so many components of food and medicine that I wanted to have you on the program. But perhaps first we should back up and just explain to me, if you will, how you became interested in psychiatry and integrative psychiatry specifically. Well, I actually went to medical school thinking that I could cure all ills with, you know, brown rice and kale. (laughs) And so I was interested before medical school and I quickly realized that both medicine and particularly psychiatry, it wasn't that simple. So getting through traditional psychiatric training, I came out, you know, as a psychopharmacologist prescribing medications for adults and children, and I very quickly realized that it wasn't always effective, there were tremendous side effects, and now close to 30 years have got been back into the reason I went to medicine is to look at nutritional, metabolic, kind of underlying causes of psychiatric illness, and many of these underlying causes tend to be nutritional deficiencies or environmental toxins. You have written a number of books, and they touch on many areas of nutrition that are quite fascinating, ADHD, binge eating, depression. All of these disorders have links through nutrition for getting better. So I thought we could touch on a few of those. One of the things that you mentioned during your excellent webinar had to do with nutritional lithium. And I have to tell you, Dr. Greenblatt, this was such a revelation to me because we never studied lithium when I was practicing to be a registered dietitian. We now have some information stating that, yes, there is a recommended dietary allowance of about 1,000 micrograms or 1 milligram. It's found in the soil and water, but one of my concerns, and as we were talking before the show, yours as well, how much is left in water after water is filtered or bottled? Let's talk about lithium first. How did you discover the power of lithium, and how much is the right amount? 
I have very, very important questions. I, I first learned about lithium, again, before medical school, about 30 years ago, from uh, Jonathan Wright, who's a very well-known uh, physician, Harvard-trained uh, MD, who's been writing about integrative medicine for many years. And the story of lithium is fascinating. Number one, it's, it's in the soil, so it's in our, our water supply. And the important thing to remember and what research has demonstrated is that the amount of water in the soil, in the tap water that you drink, has been shown to affect rates of depression, actually suicide, and aggression in communities. So we have studies from the 1980s, and, and these studies have been repeated all over the world. So the first ones were in Texas. So they took 50 different parts of Texas and looked at their tap water. They would all have varying amounts of lithium. And they were able to show that if you had low levels of lithium in your tap water, naturally in your soil, that in those communities there were higher rates of aggression, depression, and suicide. Wow. And those communities with the higher rates had lower levels. And this was repeated in England, in Austria, in Japan, and a recent one in Greece, and then they repeated one in Texas. So it's been repeated many, many times. And, and I think that's the most important kind of beginning point when you talk about lithium. It is in our soil, it's in our water, and there appears to be some dramatic benefit to having uh, dosages in the um, soil. Yeah. Well, the President's Cancer Panel Report in 2010 advised Americans to filter their tap and well water. And that had to do with a lot of the agricultural and industrial chemicals that end up in our water, pharmaceuticals as well, that may or may not be tested for in municipalities. And so many of us have water filtration units. Many of us drink bottled water. And I'm assuming that those filters are going to remove lithium. Uh, that's correct. And that's kind of one of the theories as to why, you know, those of us who've been looking at lithium in hair samples for 30 years have seen it, you know, used to be occasionally uh, see a patient a month, and now we're seeing many, many every week. And I believe it's probably the consumption of bottled and filtered water. Wow. This is so interesting. All right. Well, one of the other issues that you mentioned about lithium during the webinar that had my mouth just dropping open had to do with the fact that 7-Up is named 7-Up because it used to contain lithium. Tell me that story. Lithium um, was a major kind of tonic, if you will, or health tonic um, in the early 1900s. It was particularly um, advertised for hangovers. Uh. So for 25 years, lithiated uh, water, lithiated drinks. I think there were like 20 or 30 different drinks with low-dose lithium in them, and it would help you with hangovers. And then it was 1929 when 7-Up first developed, and the atomic weight of lithium, every every chemical is an atomic weight, was like 6.9, and so they just kind of, you know, rounded it up to 7, and 7 up, you know, lift your mood, and it was right on the label, it said lithiated lemon soda. Wow. It was until 1950, which is really amazing for those of us born in the 50s, so there was lithium in our 7 up until 1950. And so why was it removed? Well, a couple of things happened. I think as lithium became kind of more popular, 
there was a, um, a medical group that put lithium, they, they were worried about salt, and so they put uh, shakers of lithium chloride and, and for uh, salt substitute. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so people started buying it, and, and most of the people were very ill at that time with high blood pressure and medical and cardiac complications, and a few people died of putting massive amounts of lithium chloride on their food. And so everyone got frightened, but it was clearly you know, overdosing, and these were all very ill patients. So that kind of got people scared about, you know, lithium needs to be monitored. I see. I have a copy of one of your more recent books, Finally Focused, The Breakthrough Natural Treatment Plan for ADHD, and you've got a very interesting section in this book about lithium, and you write that after World War One, lithium's popularity faded, but it has come in and out of the press in terms of its beneficial properties in helping us feel better. We know that lithium is prescribed for individuals with bipolar disorders, but at doses that are much higher than what you describe as nutritional lithium, which is somewhere between 1 to 10 milligrams. Correct. I think lithium, if you bring it up in a conversation at a party, to any social event, people think of it as a very dangerous drug for those um, patients struggling with mental illness and with side effects. And that's true. High doses of lithium can produce some um, kidney damage, and thyroid damage. So it's not a medicine, even though I write prescriptions, that I use very often. But what we've been able to find is that the low doses, the nutritional lithium that you can, you know, essentially buy on Amazon, has tremendous benefits, similar to the very tiny doses in the water. And you mentioned ADHD. I think the most consistent symptom that we've had success with over these 30 years of using this is that the concept of irritability. Hmm. So those individuals with that kind of always on the edge, anger, irritability, for these young ADHD kids, these temper tantrums, are oftentimes those most responsive to nutritional lithium. And I'm assuming that this plan, do patients work normally with their physicians in taking this? Would there be some contraindications with using, say, lithium with some medications that are normally prescribed for ADHD? Not for ADHD. I think in, in the children, we're using droppers of microdoses. We use between 500 and 1,000 micrograms, so less mm-hmm. than a milligram of lithium, which, again, is probably what many of us would have in our water supplies. Sure. So it's very tiny dosages. I think if for uh, anyone with kidney disorder or thyroid disorder, they should be working with a physician. But other than that, these lower doses, 1 to 2 milligrams, are probably what's required for the average individual. And most of my work looks at those individuals that aren't average, that there might be strong family histories of mental illness, of substance abuse, and I believe that group likely needs higher lithium. Now, if people were to listen to this interview and decide to go to one of their local supplement stores and buy some lithium, I'm assuming that it comes in different forms, such as lithium carbonate, for example. Are there forms that you would recommend in favor of others? Well, lithium carbonate is the prescription, so that would not be available. 
the only form that's likely to be available at the health food store or an online nutritional store would be lithium orotate. Okay. And you mentioned that there was some toxicity with the lithium chloride. Would there be any interactions with other foods or components of foods in the diet that could cause a problem? No, not on these low dosages, you know, one to five milligrams. These are um, physiological dosages that aren't going to interact with other medications or foods. Well, this is just fascinating. All right, well, let's talk about some of the other factors that you think are important in having healthy mental status. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the minerals, in particular magnesium? Sure. Well, I I think if there was some one nutrient that is the most common uh, deficient in those struggling with either ADHD or anxiety or a host of um, mental health issues, it would be magnesium. Mm -hmm. I think, as you know, magnesium is depleted from the soil, so there's not as much in our food supply. And stress, which is so common, particularly those who are struggling with mental health issues, uh, depletes magnesium. So that combination kind of sets us up for this perfect storm of chronically low levels of magnesium, and we tend to get anxiety, depression, insomnia, and oftentimes the physical symptoms might be muscle aches or constipation. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. James Greenblatt. He has dedicated his professional career to integrative psychiatry, and we are talking about food, drugs, and mental health. I do want to talk about magnesium. This is so important because what we're finding with some of the pesticides and herbicides that are used in our environment Crops may have lower levels of some of these beneficial nutrients. Some of these herbicides bind or chelate metals, making them unavailable to the plant and therefore us. So I can understand how we are seeing some of these reduced mineral levels in our foods today. How much magnesium are you recommending? Well, without uh, testing, if someone was just supplementing on their own, it's usually two to 400 milligrams per day. One of the side effects of magnesium might be loose stools. Mm-hmm. So one would cut back if you had loose stools. There are times if we do testing and look at someone who's been chronically depleted for a long time, you know, we might recommend a higher dose. Magnesium is best used two or three times a day. And that would minimize the uh, GI side effects and kind of enhance absorption. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that you had spoken about a particular product in your book on ADHD, and that product is called Calm. And I like that because you can stir it into a cup of hot herbal tea, and it's not as offensive to me as having to swallow a pill, and I'm sure that's better for children as well. Yeah, a kid like it, either a warm drink or mix it with ice, and it just seems to be a nice routine, particularly around bedtime. So we've had great success with that product. Well, you know, you have such a compassionate approach with regard to ADHD. And because I've got finally focused in my hands, I wanted to just pick up the book and share with our listeners just a few components of it that I think need to be amplified. And one is this idea that exercise is a drug for ADHD. I think there's so many non-medical interventions that 
the scientific literature has demonstrated to be helpful for some of the symptoms of ADHD, and certainly exercise is one of them. One of the kind of famous examples is Michael Phelps, whose mother talks about his ADHD and uh, uncontrollable, very hyperactive kid until she threw him in a pool. <laughs> and, you know, the rest is history. But certainly exercise has been shown to be helpful. We all know after we exercise, we focus better. And if we can get into a routine with our kids, it uh, tends to help the course of this um, potentially very, very disabling illness. Exactly. Also, time in nature. I've seen research showing that a child that spends a half hour out in nature also regains composure similar to that which might be expected with an ADHD medication. Yeah, I just read the term vitamin N, you know, for yes. nature. And um, so both um, or blue space and, and uh, water and, and the green in nature. But clearly the research is quite convincing, and some just focus on ADHD kids, walks with ADHD kids in nature um, with significant improvement in sustained attention. Yeah. The other thing that I would like to pull out of this book, because I think it's so important and because I recently had an experience watching a young child go to a soda machine and get a 20-ounce Mountain Dew out of the machine, and I sometimes I just uncontrollably intervene, and I mention something to the parent about, wow, you know, that's really not good for his teeth. <laughs> but it's not good for so many of our body functions and how sugar impacts the microbes in our gut and how we've got this gut-brain reaction. But you have a whole chapter in Finally Focused on Sugar. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about sugar's relationship with ADHD. Sure. There's so many different um, aspects of how sugar you know, might affect behavior. But the one that gets quoted all the time is that, you know, the one study that showed sugar does not increase hyperactivity. They gave a bunch of candy to kids, and they performed just as well after the test, and so all the pediatrician thinks there's no relationship. But if you dig deeper into the literature, there's a tremendous amount of implications for high um, sugar diets and, and attention, and I'll just list some of them. One, it appears that individuals genetically with ADHD are just not as good at regulating blood sugar. So their blood sugar drops lower than the non-ADHD kids, which means they can get irritable or hyperactive. So there's some appears to be some genetic part of that equation. The other very common part of the high-sugar diet is the, um, I call it the nutrition vacuum cleaner for eating unrefined sugar without nutrients, and our body is kind of robbing the rest of our food supply or our nutrition stores to get the B vitamins that you need to metabolize the sugar. So the nutritional vacuum cleaner is uh, another variable. And then the concern around the sodas, I think, has another life of its own because here, particularly those large sodas where I, I do shiver when I, I think about the size of those drinks, Yeah. the phosphoric acid that's used, is one of the mechanisms that some people believe might contribute to ADHD, so high phosphorus in the diet, and that also is another mechanism of lowering magnesium. Oh, that's so there are many, and there are other ways that really sugar can interfere with helping kids with ADHD. Well, I thought it was interesting that you note here in the chapter on sugar that because eating sugar feels so good, a child begins to demand and eat more and more of it. And this chronic intake blunts the dopamine response, causing the child to demand and eat even more sugar in order to feel good. 
Can you talk a little bit about dopamine? Sure. You know, that's kind of that overlap sentence that really crosses into binge eating and obesity. We now know that there's a high correlation of ADHD with binge eating and obesity. And part of this is likely this regulating of this the dopamine system. So dopamine is a chemical in the brain, neurotransmitter, that is what's referred to as our pleasure neurotransmitter. So if we do something we like, if we enjoy our work, if we eat, if we have sex, if we anything that's pleasurable, we're going to get this rush of dopamine. And different individuals have genetically difference in how much dopamine they produce and how much dopamine they break down. And some individuals are kind of genetically prone to need more stimulation to get the dopamine. And for many kids with ADHD, there does appear to be kind of a genetic difference. And sometimes sugar can provide that immediate rush of dopamine. And then the receptors in the brain change, so they need more and more sugar. And that kind of provides some of that pleasure but it also creates permanent changes and oftentimes could lead to binge eating or obesity. Mm. You talk a lot about different components of the diet that help our mental health. And you also speak about those wonderful flavanols in fruits and vegetables. And as I'm reading about all the benefits of foods and nutrition and mental health, I am reflecting also on the quality of our diets especially the dietary quality of individuals who live in poverty and the kinds of foods that that those individuals have access to or don't. And because I'm a dietitian, I always focus on food rather than supplements or pills. That's just my therapy, my therapeutic approach. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on dietary quality, mental health, and how we can intervene, perhaps even on a policy level. Well, I think we you know, have enough literature now. When I started many years ago, there were just a few studies, and we really were going on both common sense and in clinical experience. But now the research is so overwhelming to the point where people have spent millions of dollars doing a study that's saying if you eat junk food, you have a higher rate of depression. Well, we probably know that, but we now have the study to prove it. So it's quite clear that the quality of the foods, nutrient-dense foods, does prevent both mental health issues, uh, aging issues, and other chronic health issues. And oftentimes, it's education. Oftentimes, it's just um, awareness. And sometimes, the uh, you know the whole food supplements can be you know a critical component of providing those nutrients that we just um, unaware of. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of those compounds that probably it's easier to use a supplement are the omega-3 fatty acids. And I say easier oftentimes to use a supplement because so many people don't have access to cold water fish that are naturally high in omega-3s. But in addition to the research that you've shared on lithium, I've seen similar research with regard to omega-3 fatty acids and how Simply by improving the balance of omega-6 to omega-3, we can reduce homicide, suicide, aggressive behaviors. So it's all of these factors taken together. And I wonder, how do we tease all these different variables out? Well, again, another really good question. I think that um, what you're describing is is very good literature now that we need to educate uh, the physicians 
because now that the, the science is published in academic journals, so educating our physicians are going to be one way that we're going to be able to treat more patients and they're going to believe in the treatment. And then public policy. I believe, as you said, in terms of the omega-3s, the implications for both prisoners, I've seen studies with prisoners giving like one or two pills that cost pennies a day, decreasing violence and aggression. The military is doing studies on omega-3s and suicide. Mm-hmm. That the implications here are if we can kind of rethink some of our financial placement of, of money for the prevention of mental health. And that's why this field is so important, or this model of uh, nutrition and integrative functional psychiatry, because it's, it's a model for prevention. These nutritional supplements can often prevent the illness before they become either life-threatening due to suicide or chronically disabling. Mm-hmm. You've had many decades of research under your belt, and we just have a few minutes left, so I want to open the floor to you. What would you like our listeners to know about integrative psychiatry and all that you've learned over these years? I think the most important thing is this concept of um, personalized medicine or biochemical individuality is the term we use. Is that um, everyone's different, so I might have 10 adults with depression they are the same age, you know, 30-year-old men who are depressed, but there might be 10 different causes. So looking at the kind of root cause is critically important for effective treatment and not always kind of going with what we call symptomatic medicine, which is what the pharmaceutical industry has done. Mm -hmm. Everybody who's depressed, they just put on antidepressants. Well, it doesn't work that way. If you're deficient in B12, the antidepressant is not going to help. So the concept of not kind of comparing yourself to your neighbor and working with um, nutritionists or physicians who can look and see your biochemistry as unique is going to be the most effective treatment. Mm-hmm. And how do you get over the hurdle of the way we think about mental health in this country? It seems like if you've got a broken arm, you can talk about it at a party. If you've got a mental health issue, then suddenly it becomes secretive and nobody wants to talk about it. Uh, the stigma and the shame is is common. Some people think it's a little better because celebrities can now talk about, I was depressed. Bruce Springsteen talked about depression and antidepressant medicine. But it's still not easy for most people. You know, you can't really go to your human resource person and say you have depression. If you say you have cancer, you get sympathy and you get anything you want in terms of time off, but depression is, oh, and, and that stigma and shame um, just follows you around. So it's really advocacy work and helping people understand these are medical illnesses and should be treated equally and as aggressively as other medical. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Greenblatt, for being my guest. Where would you like to take our listeners in terms of a website? Is there one website that might share a little bit of this information where people can learn more? I think the simplest probably is my website, James Greenblatt, MD. And that's a link to some of the books and some of the information that we have. That sounds wonderful. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We have been speaking with Dr. James Greenblatt, who has dedicated his professional career to integrative psychiatry. He is the author of many books on topics that touch many of our lives. 
He looks at issues such as ADHD, binge eating, depression, addictions, the necessities of sleep and exercise and high-quality diet in simply feeling well. Thank you so much for being my guest, Dr. Greenblatt. My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you now.